0: Good morning and welcome, everybody. Uh, As Nick said, whether it's your 40th time or your first time, I like that. Hey, one of the really cool things about worship I was just sitting there thinking about as we were enjoying that time together something um, Pastor Ben, our worship pastor, said a few months ago, and that is that worship puts God in his proper place, which is exalted, and puts us in our proper place, which is at his feet, giving him glory. And what a a great time that was to do that um, together this morning. So we want to continue and do that through the um, preaching of his word and the hearing of his word and hopefully the application of his word um, to our lives. And one little fact I did hear about the picnic outside just to get the adults excited too, there are 600 hot dogs that are being grilled as we speak. So um, eat up and have have a good time out there with the kids. Well, we're continuing this morning in the amazing book of 1 John, written by the Apostle John uh, near the end of his life. And with the exception of that really big word that Daniel shared with us last time, propitiation, remember that word? With the exception of that word, one of the unique things about John is he uses some of the simplest words you'll find in all the Bible to explain some of the deepest concepts anywhere in Scripture. And our section of Scripture this morning, which is just five little verses, 1 John 2 verses 12 through 17, is no exception because with a bunch of very little words he is going to communicate some really, really deep things to us as we dig into this. Now, as Daniel uh, has mentioned already, John was known as the apostle of love, and he referred to himself often as the one whom Jesus loved. And yet at the same time, this book of 1 John talks more about obedience than almost any other book of the Bible. And you know what? That's no irony. That's, That's no mistake. Because if we truly love Jesus... We will want to obey him. And our love for him is seen in our obedience of him. You know, Jesus repeats um, this statement three times using slightly different words, but the same concept in John 14 through 16. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John says here in 1 John 5, 3, that we'll look at in a couple months, and also in 2 John 6, says basically the same thing. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. So, there is a profound tie in between our love of Jesus and our obedience to him. And in chapters one and two of 1 John, we've been introduced so far to this concept of walking in the light, which is another way of simply saying walking in obedience to Jesus. And it is with that concept in mind that we need to look at our verses this morning, because what we have in them are some essential truths, some foundational truths that will help us to walk in the light and to obey Jesus. Now, don't get this wrong. Our obedience does not save us. We are saved by grace through faith. But the outworking of all of that should be greater and greater obedience. In other words, obedience is not the cause of our salvation, but it is the evidence of it. And so many have observed that what John is doing here in this book is showing us what genuine faith looks like, or what it looks like to walk in the light. So that's the title of the message this morning, and the theme this morning is Walking in the Light. So with that background, let me pray for the rest of our time together, and then we'll start going through it. Father God, thank you for your amazing word. Thank you that um, you could take human authors like John and communicate through them such profound, deep, life-changing, heart-changing things to us, Lord. I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each of our hearts, mine included, Lord, um, even though I've studied this a lot, to change me, Lord, even as I'm preaching it, and to change all of us here who know you, um, to help us to walk better in the light. I pray too, Lord, for those who may be here this morning, maybe for the first time, maybe they haven't been in a church in a long time or even ever, and this is the first time they've heard of this, walking in the light. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would work on their hearts to make them also, Lord, want to take a step into the light, the light of Jesus, and, and walk with him. Bless our time together, Lord, as we go through your word and as we celebrate a time of fellowship afterwards. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's start with verses 12 through 14 of 1 John 2, 12 through 14. Let me um, read those, and then we'll, we'll go through them. So John says this, I am writing to you, little children And you have overcome the evil one. Now a couple of big picture things to note in there before we go through it in detail. First notice how John uses all these family type of words there of little children, children, young men and fathers. This is a reminder of something very important that we saw last week, and that is that church is a family, and that's what we're doing here today. It's coming together to worship as a family and then to have fellowship and a time of celebration as a family. But also notice how if you think about those family words there as different ages in life, that John covers all ages here in the use of these words. He mentions, if you look at the text, little children at the beginning of verse 12. He mentions children at the end of verse 13. He mentions young men in the middle of verse 14. And then fathers, both at the beginning of verse 13 and at the beginning of verse 14. So this tells us that the church is to be multi-generational. It also reminds us of the importance of children in the church. For Jesus went out of his way in the Gospels to show his love for children and that they should be included in the life of the church. In fact, he even rebuked his own disciples one time when they tried to prevent the little children from coming to him. So praise God that we have been led as a church to have our trunk or treat event for kids this afternoon. And praise God for everyone who serves here in our children's ministry, because you are reflecting the heart of Christ and his love for children. Now, John may also be referring here to different ages of people's existence as Christians, or in other words, different levels of spiritual maturity that exist within a church. And so there's something for us to learn from that as well, because we need all types of in the church. While mature believers may perhaps understand the doctrines of the faith a little bit more and may have more experience walking with Jesus, they can sometimes grow distant from their first love and lose that sense of wonder and awe that they had when they first received Christ as their Lord and Savior and and experience that amazing forgiveness of sins that happens at that moment and the joy of salvation. And so new believers, then, are absolutely necessary in a church to bring new blood and fresh enthusiasm into the church body. So each type of Christian, you see, benefits the other. The more mature believers can be sharing their knowledge and experience with the more recent believers, and the more recent believers can be giving the more mature believers fresh infusions of that love and joy and enthusiasm that are so much a part of what it means to be a Christian. So no matter what your age is, spiritually speaking, and whether you came to Christ last weekend, praise God, I know there was a number of you, or last year, or like me in the last century, don't ever think, I I meant the 20th century, not the one before. (laughs) Don't, Don't ever think that you are not needed for you have something to offer the church body. Now, since John is talking here about walking in the light, here's something else to note about how that is best done. Because these verses all portray these different people all doing this together. You see, we were never meant to do this alone. Growing in Christ and learning to obey him is meant to be a shared experience. I need your help to walk in the light. I really do. I may be one of the pastors here of discipleship, along with Benkai. I meet with a number of people every week to help them grow in their faith, like Jason and Brian and Andrew and Gil. I work and serve in the men's group and in truth seekers and sometimes young adults. But you know what, every time I do that, you all bless me more than you'll ever know. I frequently drive home from here with joy in my heart after one of those times over something God has revealed to me through one of you, or how you have encouraged me in my own walk with the Lord. So we need each other's help. And if you turn around and you look at the person behind you, or if you turn to your right and left and look at the person beside you, you need their help, and they need your help. Remember what God's Word says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, which we should have up on the screen. It says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now John also reminds us in these verses of some foundational truths, some essential truths that are helpful to remember in order to help us walk in the light because in addition to each other, we need something else. We need the truth, God's truth, as it is revealed to us in his word in order to be able to walk in the light. Now, note how each truth in here in these verses we're looking at right now is directed to a different group so that little children, for instance, are reminded of their forgiveness. Fathers are reminded that they know Jesus. Young men are reminded that they are strong and that they have overcome the evil one and and that the word of God abides in them. And then children are reminded that they know the Father. It may be that each group mentioned has, or maybe in the particular churches he was writing to, had a certain need, more than other groups, to be reminded of a particular truth. For instance, perhaps new believers need to be reminded more of their forgiveness, maybe more than others because it is such a truly amazing thing, and it's not something that you'll ever experience before you come to Christ. Perhaps young men need to be encouraged more than others that they know God as they deal with all the pressures of life and raising a family and a job and a career. Perhaps more mature believers need to be reminded more than others that they know God as they near the day of their own going home to be with him. I don't know, and it would take a lot more prayer and study to flush that all out. But there is no doubt still that all of these truths nonetheless apply to all of us as Christians. They are all part of the filled to overflowing, abundant package of spiritual blessings that we get as part of our salvation. So let's look at that, them that way collectively as a family. How do these apply to us? In first, uh, verse 12, John reminds us there that our sins have been forgiven. In verse 13, he reminds us of three things. First, that we know him who was from the beginning, and that's a reference to Jesus. That's how John referred to him earlier in the opening words of 1 John. Second, in verse 13, we see that we have overcome the evil one because in Christ we have overcome Satan. And then third, we see that we know God as our father, meaning that we are a child of God and Jesus is our brother, And then in verse 14, he again reminds us that we know him who was from the beginning. And then he tells us that we are strong and that the word of God abides in us. And again, that we have overcome the evil one. And finally, notice how John begins each sentence in this little section of Scripture by using the words, I am writing to you or I write you. Well, think about that. What is he writing us? He's writing us the very Word of God. And that just underscores the importance of the Word of God to help us walk in the light. So, wow, that's a lot of truth, and we could probably do a sermon on each one. But for now, let's go back over them and consider how each of these truths help us to walk in the light. First, let's take forgiveness. You see, knowing that we are forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, gives us joy, it takes away guilt, it takes away shame, and it makes us incredibly grateful. For you see, more than anything else that the world can do to us or anyone in the world can do to us, sin is our greatest problem, which then makes forgiveness our greatest need, and that is satisfied and met for us in Christ. For without forgiveness, the Bible says we are separated from God, who is holy, and who is life. And that separation, it says, will endure for eternity if we are not forgiven. So understanding also our own forgiveness will do something else for us. It will help us find the ability to forgive others because we are to be a forgiving people. And Ephesians 4.32 says that as Christians, we are to forgive others as Jesus Christ forgave us. And... Those of us that walk in the light then are called to be forgiving people. And that can sometimes be difficult, I know. But if we know how Jesus forgave us, it can become a little easier to forgive others. Because he forgave us, think about this, even though we didn't deserve it. And he forgave us fully and unconditionally. And he didn't make us jump through a bunch of hoops in order to obtain his Forgiveness. Our forgiveness cost him dearly, for he paid for it with his life. And forgiving someone else in our lives may cost us something too, like our pride, our self-focus, maybe our self-pity. But that is nothing compared to what Jesus paid for us to have forgiveness. You see, sometimes I, I like to cook steak every Sunday night. Nick lived with us for a while and he got used to that. But sometimes a tough, steak needs to marinate, right? And you put it in some tenderizing juices and let it sit there for a few hours to soften it up before you barbecue it. Well, see, our hearts can be the same way. Our tough hearts sometimes need to spend some time marinating in the tenderizing agent of God's tender, loving, gracious forgiveness of us in order to soften them up so that we can then be able to forgive others so that we can then forgive them fully and unconditionally and not make them jump through hopes to get it and give it to them even if they don't deserve it. And I'll be honest, sometimes they don't, but it doesn't matter. We didn't deserve it, and Jesus gave it to us. Now think of how two more things that John mentions in here, knowing God and then knowing him as Father can help us walk in the light. To know God simply means to have a relationship with him and to understand his character, and his nature, that he is both light, as we have already seen in the book of 1 John, and that he is love, as we're going to see a lot more as we move on through 1 John. And so, knowing both the holiness of God and at the same time the love of God should help us appreciate much more the miracle and the wonder of our own salvation. Because the fact that there is a way found only through the cross For God to remain perfectly holy and not compromise his holiness because he exacted the punishment for our own sin on his son, and then at the same time for him to extend love and mercy and forgiveness and grace to us, that should never cease to blow us away. And if you're here today and you've never experienced that, you can do so right now by putting your faith and trust and confidence in Jesus to save you from the punishment for your own sins. And you can come to know this amazing God in an intimate, personal way. Part of how the Bible says that we can know God, which we see here, is as our Father. Think about that for a minute. Think of what fathers, at least the good ones, which God is because he is perfect, do for us. They love us, they provide for us, they protect us, they comfort us, as well as talk with us, teach us, guide us, encourage us. And fathers enjoy spending time with us, and we enjoy spending time with them. In Romans 8.15, the Bible tells us that as Christians, we can even call God Abba, Father. And Abba was a Hebrew way of simply saying Daddy. If you listen to Jewish people talk today, you'll hear that Abba, Abba instead of Daddy, Daddy. That means that whenever we may need to, whenever life is beating us up, or whenever we just want to, because we want to spend some time with Him, we can crawl up in our Heavenly Father's lap and call Him Daddy, and spend some time with Him, and look into His face, and hear from Him, and enjoy His presence. Now, the Bible very clearly also teaches of the existence of Satan, who's mentioned in here as well the evil one, who's referred to in these verses. Ephesians 2.2 refers to him as the prince of the power of the air, which tells us that there is an evil spirit world around us out there, and that he is the prince or ruler over it. This verse also tells us that before we accepted Jesus, uh, uh, that, that, excuse me, that verse, Ephesians 2.2 that I was talking about, tells us that before we accepted Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, we were actually following that prince as we lived lives that were ruled by the passions of our flesh. Jesus also taught that if we don't know him as our Lord and Savior, that Satan then is our true father. But here's something really exciting about becoming a Christian. We get a new dad. We get a change of fathers. Ephesians 1.5 says that believers have been adopted by God into his family. And God is far more powerful than Satan. For the Bible says that Jesus defeated him on the cross, and he is now under a sentence of eternal death, headed for certain doom in a place the Bible calls the lake of fire. And until that day comes, the Bible also shows us that God puts hedges around Satan to restrain his activities, And it says in Ephesians 6.10-11 that in the strength of the Lord and with the spiritual protection that he gives us, called there our spiritual armor, we have the ability to stand against the schemes of the devil. Later on in this book, in 1 John 4.4, John is going to declare that he who is in us, meaning Jesus, in the person and power of the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, this prince of the powers of darkness. So that is why John says here, both in 1 John 2.13 and again in 2.14, that we have overcome the evil one. You see, that's a really important truth that we need to know and we need to live in the reality of so that we aren't crippled by excessive fear of demons or blame them every time we fall and forget that we have personal responsibility for our own sin. Remember, John just declared, as Daniel taught through two weeks ago at the end of chapter 1, that when we sin, we need to own it, not deny it, and that we need to take personal responsibility for it and confess it as sin and then receive that forgiveness and that cleansing that God so freely offers. You see, we are not given the option anywhere in Scripture of blaming it on the devil. So knowing That in Jesus, you are someone who has overcome the evil one, is an important truth for being able to walk in the light. Because part of walking in the light is, as John just taught us, taking responsibility for and not denying our own sin, and then confessing it as sin, not as demonic activity. Now next in these verses, John tells us in verse 14, that we are strong. Now that not only logically flows from the truth that we have overcome the evil one, but it also speaks of the power that now rules us in place and instead of the prince of the power of the air. And that power is the amazing indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. In several places in Scripture, I'll give you just a few if you want to jot them down. Romans 8.11 is one. Ephesians 1, 19 to 20 is another. And then Philippians 3:10 is yet a third one. In those places, the Bible describes this. What we're talking about is resurrection power. And it tells us that the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the very same power that took three-day-old dead flesh and brought it back to life and freed him from that tomb, that very same power lives within each of us as believers to enable us to live out the Christian life, or as 1 John calls it, to walk in the light. And just as John wants us here in this book to know this foundational truth, so does Paul, and both of them are expressing God's will as they write his word. For in Ephesians 1, Paul prays that from the eyes of our heart, which was a Greek way of saying from the center of the center of our being, we would know that this power This resurrection power dwells within us. So a very important truth for us to remember as we walk in the light. The final foundational truth for walking in the light that we have in this section of 1 John is the word of God, which is both what he is writing to us and is also specifically referred to there at the end of verse 14 as something that abides in us. You see, the word of God is so powerful That in Psalm 19, 7 through 11, it is described as being perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, eternal, true, righteous, and highly desirable. And it's also described in those verses as having the power to do some amazing things that the world seeks after, but we have in Christ to revive our souls, to give us wisdom, to rejoice our hearts. to enlighten our eyes and to warn us and reward us. James, in James 1.25, describes the word of God as being the perfect law of liberty, which, like a mirror, reveals to us where those areas are in our lives in which we need to be putting God's word into practice. And as he says, they're being doers of his word, not just hearers only. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God can literally do surgery on our souls and our spirits and that it can reveal the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. 2 Timothy 3.17 says that the word of God is completely sufficient to equip us to live as Christians. And finally, speaking of walking in the light, one of my favorite verses, Psalm 119, which is all about the word of God, but Psalm 119.105, I believe it's 105, or no, maybe it's 95, describes the Word of God as being both a lamp under our feet, something that lights up our path right in front of us to keep us from tripping, and also a light onto our path, meaning it, it shines down the path. It shows us where we're going, it gives us meaning and purpose and direction to our lives and keeps us focused on our final destination which is to be eternally in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ. I kind of think of that like when you're camping. You know, there's two lights you have. You might have a Coleman lantern. And if you have to get up in the middle of the night to walk to the bathroom, you want that lantern to keep you from tripping as you're walking. But if you're going down a long path to get there, you want that mag light, right? That big, long thing that's going to shine way down the path so you don't run into trees and things of that nature. The Word of God does both. It's It's the lamp and it's the light. Now, note where John says in verse 14 of our text that this word is. He says there that it abides in us, which means that it dwells in us. The the literal uh, Greek word meant that it has pitched its tent in us or taken up resonance in us. And that happens in at least two ways. One is that the Holy Spirit, who lives in us and whom Jesus referred to several times as the Spirit of Truth, will guide us in God's word and help us remember God's word and call it into play when we need it and make it clear to us as we study it. But the other is that we've got to spend time in it in order for it to abide in us. We've got to spend time reading it, studying it, chewing on it, meditating on it, because this doesn't just happen by osmosis. You can't just put your head down on a pillow at night with a Bible underneath it and expect that this is going to happen. Psalm 119 verse 11 tells us to hide God's word in our heart so that we might not sin against him. Well, doing that, hiding his word in our heart takes some intentionality. It takes some effort. It takes some diligence and some time on our part. So this walking in the light, I hope you see, sounds like pretty amazing stuff, pretty powerful stuff and pretty life-changing stuff, and frankly, absolutely essential things to help us in our walk as Christians. So let's just quickly review what we've seen so far to help us walk in the light, and then we'll move on. First, we have each other in the church body to help us walk in the light. Second, we've been forgiven. Third, we know God, and we have a relationship with him as father. Fourth, we have overcome the evil one, Fifth, we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And sixth, we have the Word of God available to us. You see, those are all tremendous resources that we can draw off of to help us walk in the light. And praise God, he has not left us clueless or without the resources necessary to do this. He has called us to walk in the light, but he has also enabled us to walk in the light. And all that's left for us to do is to say, yes, yes, Lord, I want to walk in the light and to take advantage of these things he has given us. So if you're a Christian here today, the Bible actually says that is your calling. That is part of why God saved you, was to make you holy and blameless before him. It wasn't just to get you into heaven one day, but to help you and I live like citizens of heaven right now, right here on this earth in this very moment. No wonder Peter says this in 2 Peter 2, 3-4. 2 Peter 2, 3-4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian yet, and you're tired of walking in the darkness, and tired of walking in guilt and shame and in fear, and if you want to make your eternal destiny secure and live now in the joy and the peace and the purpose and the meaning and the direction that we've been talking about, you can take a step of faith this morning to walk in the light because everything we've just covered can be yours if you would accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You just need to repent, which simply means to acknowledge that you have been walking in darkness and that your deeds have been dark. And then just turn around. That's what repentance means, make a turn. Take a step away from the darkness and a step towards Jesus who is the light of the world. Tell Jesus that you trust in him to be your savior and to forgive you from the judgment you deserve for your own sin. Tell him that you want him, not the prince of darkness, to be the Lord of your life. Tell him that you believe that he died for your sins and that he was resurrected to give you new life by that resurrection power that we've talked about this morning. And I can assure you on the authority of God's word that he will do that. He will save you from the darkness, and he will be the light of your world, both now and forever, and you will have that same resurrection power within you that we've talked about this morning. Now, for all believers, both young, brand new, or long-time ones, there are still some obstacles in the road ahead as we walk in the light. And one of the main ones is the world. So that's what John is going to address next in verses 15 through 17. So let's read those and then dig into them as we close. So 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, before we dig into this, it's really important that we clarify something. And that is what is meant here by that phrase, the world. Because here's the issue, and it really gives us a great opportunity to learn how to deal with what appear to be difficulties in understanding the Bible. This same author John, the apostle of love, in his gospel, in John 3.16, said this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the same author, John, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, in one place says to love the world, and in another place here in our verses before us this morning, says to not love the world. Which is it, and what is going on? Well, we first have to start with the assumption that the problem must be with us and our understanding, not with the Word of God. For the Word of God is, as we just recited from Psalm 19, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, eternal, and true. So there can't possibly be any errors in it. You know, I've been um, a practicing attorney now for 42 years this November, And uh, I do a lot of litigation work involving contracts. And so a lot of my time is spent reviewing written documents and analyzing testimonies of witnesses, trying to find inconsistencies in them. And when I apply that same skill to the Word of God, as I've been doing for 37 years now as a Christian, the more and the more I study it, the more convinced I am there is nothing inconsistent in this book. It may seem that way sometimes to us at first, but if you dig into it, it is the most clear pure, constant message, doesn't contradict itself, absolute truth that you will ever, ever find. So you have to come to it with that confidence as you look at these things. Another thing that's important to do as you look at seeming inconsistencies in scripture and you're trying to figure out the meaning is to consider it in context. That's true of any document that you would study, especially the Bible. And I'll share a classic example with you from the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, you probably know Jesus actually says, if your right arm causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do with it? Cut it off. Now, if you looked at that verse out of context, we could tell who the really sincere walking in the light Christians are because they would be the amputeed left-handed Christians walking around, right? But, but we know that's not what Jesus meant, because if you look at the context in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying you should be willing to give up anything to get rid of your sin, which is ultimately what he does for us, because he's trying to show us we can't get rid of it, but it only comes through him. And you look at the rest of Scripture, you'll see that nowhere does God ever tell us to mutilate ourselves and go around like that. So clearly, you, you step back, look at things in the context of the book it's in, the, the part of the Scripture, and then the whole Bible, and it now begins to come clear to you as to what the Bible is talking about. So when we apply these principles to John's writings and this seeming inconsistency here between 1 John 3.16 and what we have before us, here is what we see. In 1 John, as Daniel taught us last time, John has just taught us on the importance of loving others. I've been humming that Song, they will know we are Christians by our love all week long. As I learned it when I was a kid, it was so neat to sing it here last week. So, so John's just talked about the importance of loving other people if we want to be walking in the light. If we look carefully at John 3:16, he follows that statement about God loving the world with what word? Whoever, whoever. Well, that's a reference to people. So clearly then, you put that all together. When John says to not love the world here, he is not talking about the people of the world. For we are, as God does, to love them and be taking the message of salvation through Jesus to them. Instead, what John is talking about here are the ways of the world, the ways that it walks in darkness apart from God. Or in other words, its wisdom, its values, and its way of doing things because none of those are centered around God. And so, other places in scripture we will see this. Colossians 2.8 speaks of the empty philosophies of the world. The end of Colossians 2 speaks of the empty religious practices of the world, which it says may look good on the outside, but are absolutely of no use against our fleshly indulgences, meaning there's no power in religion. James 3 contrasts the wisdom of this world with the wisdom of God. And then finally, Romans 12.2, which we have up on the screen as well, I believe, says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see the world there in that Romans 12.2 verse is speaking about a way of thinking that needs to be changed in your mind, because in case you haven't noticed it yet, the world's way of thinking is trying to conform us to the way the world thinks. There was a, a translation of the Bible in use actually two centuries ago now, before the one I was born in, in the 19th century called the J.B. Phillips translation. And it was a concept-by-concept concept translation, much like our living Bible is today, not a word-by-word not a word one, not one for deep Bible study, but good at communicating that general sense of something. And he translated the first few words of Romans 12.2 this way, It's awesome. He said, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. That's what it's trying to do, to squeeze us into its way of thinking and its way of doing things. It's not talking here about the people of the world. And sadly, many times, the reason I spent so much time on this is we as Christians get this all backwards. And we can go around despising the people of the world and treating them with contempt and derision and getting all worked up about them and and even to the point of bitterness and slandering them and being angry at them. while at the same time, not realizing that in acting like that, we are actually following the ways and the thinking of the world, for that's how they deal with things, is through anger and bitterness and slander and dissension and things of that nature. You see, the Bible does not call us to a cultural war against the people of this world. Rather, it tells us we're in a spiritual war for the souls of people, to save them from the forces of darkness, to keep people out of being enslaved and blinded to their various lusts and pleasures. We need to love them. We need to look upon them with compassion, as sheep without a shepherd, who are blessed and helpless, after all, That's how Matthew 9.36 tells us that Jesus saw people. Think about this. Would anyone want to go to a doctor who gets mad at his or her patients for getting sick? Of course not. We want to go to a doctor who has compassion on us as his or her patients. Well, we need to think about that as we relate to the unbelieving world around us. And so we got to ask ourselves, and we talk amongst ourselves, how do we speak about unsaved people who are in our lives or maybe in the public eye, maybe leaders of countries or, or, or corporations? You know, we can sometimes sound like we have a lot of disdain for them and like we really wouldn't want to live with them, have them anywhere near us in our community or work with them or go to school with them or even have them on our social media accounts. Is it any wonder then that we're not as effective as the church in America as perhaps we could be in reaching them. You see, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners and we should want to be known the same way. It was such a blessing recently here. Um, I was praying with someone after service and they shared their joy with me about this church because it seemed to them to be a place where unwelcome people were welcomed. What an awesome way for us to be known as a church. And that is how Jesus wants each one of us individually to be known as we move and act and interact with the unsaved world around us. So let's look now at what the Word of God says about the world in the correct usage of the term, meaning its stuff, its ways, its wisdom. First of all, verse 15 of 1 John 2 tells us that nothing about this world should become our love. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the nice things of this world. Uh, after all, in 1 Timothy 6:17, actually speaking of money there, God's word says that God richly provides us with all things to enjoy. And 1 Peter 3:7, speaking of the time that as a husband you get to spend with your wife enjoying this world, it speaks of enjoying the grace of life. And it doesn't mean what we see here in verse 15, that all the things of this world are bad. After all, as Daniel has been reminding us, this letter was written to address the false teaching of the Gnostics who said that all matter was evil. So that can't possibly be what John's talking about either. The real issue here is one of priority or preeminence, which is why I thought the songs Nick picked to sing this morning were so awesome. It's a question of who or what is first in your life. Who or what gets the primary focus of your love Is it God or is it something else? So do not love the world you see in that sense where something else is taking God's rightful place as the sole being that gets your first love. And then John gives us three reasons why we shouldn't do that. He says first in our text, if we love the world in that sense, it says then that the love of God is not even in us. Well, that's pretty scary because that basically means that we might not even really be a Christian. Because you see, if we understand the incredible miracle of salvation and how completely undeserving of it we are, then we will want to love God first. Above everything else, it will be our logical response. He will be our first love, as Revelation 2.4 speaks of. Secondly, in our text, John tells us here in verse 16 that the things of this world like our fleshly desires, the desires of our eyes, meaning things like anger, greed, lust, covetousness, those are not from God. So why would we want them? It also tells us that the pride of life, the things about ourselves that puff us up, our own accomplishments, our own achievements, and the sense of selfish pride that can come from that, that those things are not from God either. So again, the point is, why would we want them? Because as James 1.17 says, everything that comes to us from God is good, but not so with the things of the world. Finally, John gives us the last reason to not love the things of the world. And that is in verse 17, where he says that it is all passing away. And he contrasts that with the child of God who's going to exist forever. You know, 2 Peter 3.10 speaks of a time when all that is in this world will be consumed by a gigantic fire. So the point is, don't get too attached to it because it's all going to burn someday. I remember when Janet and I were remodeling our home nearly 30 years ago, we kept that principle at the forefront of our mind. Every time you're thinking about do I spend this or spend that or do this or do that, at the end of the day, it's all gonna burn. So don't get too worked up about those things. Here, this side of heaven. And our verse here in 1 John also says that the world, the things of the world, is actually already passing away. You see, things change. They fall out of shape. Physicists call it the law of entropy, meaning that everything is winding down. I mean, if you're over 40, can't you feel that in your own body? Right? Daniel's not there yet, but Ben and I I are. I mean, just think of worldly wisdom, how frequently it changes, and how what was in or thought to be true one day is often out and believed to be false in a very, very short period of time. Uh, John MacArthur has a great quote on this that I love. He says, man's wisdom compared to God's wisdom is right about as often as a broken clock tells time. (laughs) And if you think about it, that's only twice a day, and it's completely by accident, right? Okay, so that's the comparison between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. I've collected a few humorous examples of that truth over the years that I love. I mean, the world's greatest scientist said at one time that the earth was flat, right? They thought that for hundreds, thousands of years. A recent one, we just probably don't know it, but um, 74 years ago, on October 14, 1947, Chuck Yeager shattered the sound barrier. Do you know what about half of the world's leading aerospace engineers thought was going to happen if he tried to do that? They thought both he and his plane would be shattered. The wisdom of the world changing. My favorites, uh, Steve Jobs, who blessed us with those things you're all carrying around this morning looking at your Bible on, Steve Jobs said in 1981, 64K of memory is more than anyone will ever need. Are you you kidding me? How would he live without a lot more memory than that? And then Decca Records, which was one of America's leading record publishing houses in 1963, was offered the chance to sign this up-and-coming band from England called The Beatles. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. We think this rock and roll thing is a fad. It's going to blow over in six months. And look at all the billions of dollars they left on the table because of that. So God's wisdom unchanging, eternal, always relevant, always applies. Man's wisdom constantly changing, not something you can put eternal trust and confidence in. Now, as we close, I want to address two different types of people who are in our world and undoubtedly are here in our church this morning. The first group are those who already know Jesus as their shepherd, and that may be most of you here this morning. But the second group is really important, those That is those who may not know Jesus yet as their Lord and Savior. And God's word is so amazing. It has something to say to both groups almost every time we come to it. For the believers here, the issue for us is how do we live in this world? I mean, how do we live in this world as people who are called to, on the one hand, love the people of the world, but on the other hand, not love the things and the ways and the wisdom and the values of the world? And if you're not a believer yet, the question is, what do you need to do? Not only to escape the coming destruction of the world, but the coming death of your own self. You know, we, as Christians, we often get so focused on the end times, when that's all going to happen. But I love what my friend Steve Bunyard from Rolling Hills Covenant is very fond of saying. He says, you know, for each one of us, an end times is coming pretty soon. <laughs> so so stay, stay focused on that. How, how can you escape that eternal death? And how can you be able to live now free from the passions and lusts of the world which never satisfy and which are cruel taskmasters? How can you live now free from the wisdom of the world which as we have seen is not from God and is always changing? Well, the verse that seems to best address both groups to answer this question is found somewhere else in scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.20. So we're going to look at that as we close. 2 Corinthians 5.20. And it says this, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul's speaking to both groups of people there. In the first section of that verse, it speaks of believers as living as ambassadors in this world for Jesus. Well, think for a minute about what that means. What is an ambassador and what do they do? Well you see an ambassador is a citizen of one nation who was chosen by his or her prime minister, president or king to go over to a foreign nation and to live there amongst the people of that foreign nation and while there to be a representative of their president, prime minister or king who chose them and sent them and to always seek to represent their leader in the best possible light, and to always seek to advance the agenda or the mission of their leader. Ambassadors are also known for their graciousness and their politeness to the people in the foreign nation where they live. Presidents never pick jerks to be ambassadors, okay? In the news and in books and in movies, we frequently see ambassadors hosting big parties, inviting all sorts of people from all different parts of life into those parties in the nation in which they have been sent. Well, brothers and sisters, you see, that's exactly how God wants us to relate to the world in which we live. For we are citizens of heaven, chosen by our king and sent by our king to this foreign realm, this world, to represent him in the best possible light and to always seek to advance his mission, which all through the book is the theme of a holy God redeeming fallen man. His mission is to save the lost, and so we are to love them and be gracious to them just as an ambassador is, and we are to invite them into our lives and into our world just as that ambassador invites them into his parties, and above all else, we are not to act like jerks toward them, for we, are supposed to be different. We are supposed to be walking in the light. Now for those who aren't believers yet, the second part of that verse in in, um, 2 Corinthians 5.20 gives a very simple word to you as well. It says, be reconciled to God. To reconcile means to put back together something that is torn apart. And if you read that whole chapter there in 2 Corinthians 5, or think about just what we've discussed here this morning, That only happens through Jesus. That's the only way to be reconciled to God. And it happens when you accept him as your Lord and Savior because our sin separates us from God. And we need something done with that in order for us to be reconciled to him. So let's end our time together now with some prayer, both for the believers in the house and for those who are not yet believers as well. So let's just bow our heads and pray. Father, I thank you for these marvelous truths from your word. Lord, I pray for each and every believer here, including myself, that we we would know and grasp these truths that we've been looking at this morning for how to walk in the light, how to not love the things of the world while at the same time, Lord, living in this world as ambassadors for you and loving the people of this world as you love them and seeking to lead them to be reconciled to God through you, Lord Jesus. And for unbelievers who may be here this morning, if you want to know God as your father, if you want to know that he loves you and has forgiven you, if you want to escape the darkness of life in this world and start walking in the light, here's all you need to do. Just come to Jesus right now. He's here in this room. And tell him that you know you're a sinner. Tell him that you want to turn from your sins. Give your life to him and start following him. Let him know that you believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, and that you believe that he was resurrected to give you new life. And you know what? You can then crawl up in God's lap right now. You can call him daddy, for there's always room for one more there.